Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much um, for all that you've done for us on the cross. Um, it's awesome, it's amazing, and it's so undeserved. God, we just um, pour out our praise to you, we open our hearts to you, and we long to see you high and lifted up in our hearts, God. We just pray that you would um, continue to work in our midst here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the little ones can head off to Children's Church. Stomp really hard. Make a lot of noise. Yes! Good morning. As we've been going through this series called Unexpected, um, this morning I'm going to be talking about an unexpected response from a person in the Bible who whenever a list of names is mentioned in the New Testament, his name is always listed last. And my guess is, based on his legacy, that you would be hard-pressed to find anyone who has given their child his name. And it'd probably be more than an educated guest you probably couldn't even find a dog with his name. <laughs> There's actually a law in Germany which prohibits you from naming your child Judas. And this morning what I want to share with you is three unexpected things we see when we look at the life of Judas. To begin with, Judas rejected Christ. I think without a doubt, this has to be the most unexpected response ever in the history of mankind. I mean, there are a lot of things you could say you never saw coming, but I think this one tops them all. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, on the Jumbotron at a Major League Baseball game or basketball game when the woman turns down the proposal. I mean, like, that is so unexpected, right? Or imagine being the, the, the ticket holder for last year's um, Powerball and having won $758 million. This is even more unexpected than that. Or like, imagine an 80-day, an 80-degree day in January in Iowa, right? <laughs> You'd just be like, what? <laughs> this one tops them all. It was a complete shocker. You never saw it coming, and no one else did either. When Judas rejected Christ, after three and a half years of living with Jesus, 
He said no to the gospel. And he stiff-armed the Son of God. It was completely unexpected. I mean, to begin with, the name Judas, it means God be praised. I mean, even that is unexpected, right? I mean, so think back to his birth when his parents named him. His parents must have had such high hopes for him. They must have prayed that this young boy's life would bring praise to God. They had high hopes. They were looking for such great things in their son. And for a time, it seemed like he would. When Jesus came along, he answered his call. Judas gave up everything, and he followed Christ. He, along with the other 12, repeatedly declared his devotion to Christ. He was intimately acquainted with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for years. He was taught by him with words that had the kind of clarity, power, and conviction that no other words ever will. He was taught by Jesus through example because everything he taught them, he lived out to 100% perfection. Judas was taught to know the will of God. He was taught to know the word of God, to know it, to love it, to believe it, and even to preach it. He saw the miracles of Jesus day after day. He saw Jesus' power over demons. He saw his power over death. He saw his power over disease displayed again and again and again. He heard Jesus answer every single theological question perfectly. His answers were always the end of the discussion. There was no need to ask Jesus, could you clarify? Could you explain that differently? Everyone there, no matter your race, no matter your background, no matter your age, everyone knew exactly what he meant. Perfectly. Judas was told repeatedly, hundreds, if not thousands of times, that every sinner needs salvation. He was told about the reality of eternal heaven and the reality of eternal hell. Jesus said more about both of those things than anyone else in the Bible. And he spoke way more about hell than he did heaven. And even with all of this, after three and a half years of living with the Son of God, he betrayed him. And as a result, he was eternally condemned, separated from God, and has been and will be tortured in hell forever. This is so unexpected. I mean, how could he reject Christ? After everything he'd seen him do, after everything he'd heard him say, 
even Nicodemus, right? After only spending a few hours with Jesus one night, he was convinced, this is the Son of God. So how could Judas not be convinced after spending three and a half years worth of nights and days and mornings with the Son of God? In our Equipping Hour class with our high school students, we've been talking about how to have conversations with those who are not Christians. And we've been talking about this thing called the three-force principle. Basically, the idea is this. People are on a continuum. At both ends, people are convinced. But on this end, they're convinced that Christ is Lord. And on this end, they're convinced that he is not. Right? And the difference that separates the two is this side is believers, these side is unbelievers. So you have those who are convinced, who are Christians. You have those who are, they still have doubts and questions, but they're Christians. But then you have people who are not Christians, but they have doubts. And then you have people who are absolutely convinced, right? These are like stout atheists. Like, and what we say in our class repeatedly is this. We say, these people are so convinced that even if Jesus were to show up right here in their school, in their workplace, and say, come with me, let's go to St. Luke Hospital, we will walk through the halls, and I will heal everyone. And then we can go to Mount, we can go to Mercy Hospital. And then we can go down to the University of Iowa. And then we can go up north to Mayo Clinic. They would still not believe. And so we tell our class, what do you need to do? You need to pray for them, right? Well, this was Judas. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus eradicate disease from Israel. It was profound. It's unimaginable to be that close to God and still reject him. Now some of you might be thinking this, but wait, wait a minute. Wasn't it prophesied wasn't it prophesied that Judas would, would reject Christ? I mean, maybe, maybe he didn't really have a choice in the matter. Well, yes, it was prophesied. God is sovereign, and Judas's rejection was predetermined. Both things are true. God is sovereign. And Judas's rejection was predetermined. It was actually foretold in Scripture. In Psalm 41.9, it says that my friend ate bread with me and lifted up his heel against me. That's a specific reference to Judas when he betrayed Jesus. And that was fulfilled in John chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus said, now this prophecy is fulfilled because Judas has just done this. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, it says that 30 pieces of silver will be sold for the price of me. And that also was fulfilled in Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10, when Judas sold and betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And so God chose to, God chose 
Judas to fulfill his plan. He would be the betrayer. But at the same time, Judas had a choice. Judas chose to follow Jesus. And get this, at the end of John chapter 6, when some of the other disciples started following away, Judas chose to hang in there. He made his own choices. And he even chose to reject Christ. And Judas was completely responsible for the choices he made. Romans chapter 1 makes that crystal clear. Everyone is responsible for the decisions they make. No one has an excuse. No one. And of course, this is a great tension, right, between God's sovereignty and human choice. Like, how can it be? How can both be true? They seem to sort of refute one another. They seem to sort of tear each other down. But I love what Spurgeon has to say on this. He says this. He says, if I find in one part of the Bible that everything is predetermined, then I must believe that to be true. And then he says, and if I find in another part of the Bible that man is completely responsible for his actions, then I must believe that is also true. He, and he says this, he says, it is only my folly that leads me to believe they would contradict each other. They are like two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human eye, which pursues them the furthest, they just keep looking, looking for that contradiction. He says this, they will never see them converge. Never. Because they only converge in eternity. That's when you'll be like, oh, I see how they work together. It's, it's, what, it's what scholars call it a, an antinomy. It's like it doesn't make sense. How can both of these things be true? But they are. Yes, his actions were predetermined, but he was wholly responsible for them. And his rejection was unexpected because no one else knew. When Jesus would say, when Jesus would say this phrase, and he said it a couple times, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples were like, who? Who is it? They had no idea. Think about that for a minute. They were clueless. Judas was so close to them. But he was so far from God in his heart. He was so good at living a double life that his closest friends were clueless. But Jesus wasn't. No, in John chapter 6, Jesus knew exactly. He said in John chapter 6, one of you is a devil. Jesus knew Judas' heart. How is it that these guys could live with him and just have no idea. Who's going to betray you? We don't know. Just, it's just totally unexpected. The second thing 
that I find unexpected is that Judas is spending an eternity in hell. And Scripture confirms that fact. Right? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you will say, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do these other things in your name? I mean, that's a perfect description of Judas. And then Jesus will say to me, Depart from me. I never knew you. Right? And in John chapter 13, as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and he tells them, he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. If you are not clean, you will have no share with me, no share in my kingdom, no share in my inheritance. And he specifically said, one of you is not clean. Not all of you are clean. And most specifically, in John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus prayed. And he said, Father, I've protected those that you've given me. I've protected them. He said, except for the one doomed to destruction. Judas is spending an eternity in hell. And the reason why that is so unexpected is because Judas was sorry. If you will, turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And beginning in verse 1, in Matthew 27, verse 1. It says, when morning came, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He was seized with remorse. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, in the same way he had seen Jesus' divinity, he now saw Jesus being physically beaten. He saw him brutally beaten, spit upon, and mocked. And it says he was seized with remorse. He was seized with remorse. It was like a Mack truck coming out of nowhere. Judas was immediately overcome with guilt. And he even said this. He said, I have sinned. He knew he had done something wrong, and he knew he was responsible for it. So how on earth can he be spending an eternity in hell? Well, there are five, there are five main Greek words used for sin in the New Testament. And I won't pronounce them to you because 
I don't know how to pronounce them. But here's what they mean. Words for sin in the New Testament. They mean missing the target. They mean inward evil. They mean a perversion of character. It means stepping over a known boundary. And it means violating a known law. So either, either this, either there's some standard we fail to reach or a line that we deliberately cross. And this is not some random line but it's a st- or random standard, but it's a standard and a line established by God so that whenever we sin, whenever you sin, it is God's standard that's being rejected. It is God's line that's being crossed. Therefore, it is God who is most offended every time we sin. It is God who is most offended this is why we pray like David in Psalm 51.4 against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil. It is a direct offense against God. And it says, and I have done what is evil in your sight so that you, God, may be justified in your judgment. But here's the thing. Judas didn't understand that he had sinned against God. At least that's what this story shows us. Yeah, he'd sinned. He knew he'd crossed a line. But I don't think he knew it was God's line. I don't think he understood the gravity of his sin. And here's why I think that. Because Because some of you in this room have been Christians for so long that you can't remember a time in your life when you actually felt guilty and that guilt did not lead you to repentance. I mean, if you're a Christian, when you feel guilty, it leads you to repentance. It leads you back to God. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, it totally happens. You can absolutely be overcome by guilt to a crushing degree and it has absolutely nothing to do with God for example as a child in in an attempt to pick up an attempt to help my mom get our puppy out of the way I picked up our dog and threw it down the stairs And I was overcome by guilt for years. My dog died because of something I had done as a teenager. I had betrayed one of my best friends in the worst possible way. And even as a college student, I stole a $100 jacket from the Iowa State bookstore. And in every one of those cases, I vividly remember I was overwhelmed with guilt. But God was absent from all of them. And I think in the same way, God was absent 
from the mind and heart of Jesus. Because there is a world of difference between remorse and repentance. The difference between remorse and repentance is the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 says that worldly sorrow, it produces death. That's what I was experiencing. I was, I was wallowing in, in just, just despair and, and depression and hopelessness. Like, I've done something wrong. How do I make it right? What can I do? Nothing. And often, worldly sorrow, it, it wallows in self-pity. It wallows in bitterness. Sometimes, worldly sorrow, it's even manipulative and defensive. And, and, and it causes you to view yourself as a victim. Whereas godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It says that godly sorrow produces these, these several things in our lives. It says that it produces an earnestness to make things right. An eagerness to prove yourself trustworthy again. An indignation, a hatred towards sin. It produces a fear of God. It produces a longing to see our relationships restored, primarily the relationship with God. It produces a zeal for holiness, and it's willing to accept punishment or the consequences for its sin, no matter what they are. But most of all, godly sorrow, it leads to salvation. It leads us to God. It always brings us back to the Father, just like it did for the prodigal son. When he came to his senses, when he realized what he had done and what he realized he had done was so wrong, it brought him where? Back to the Father. But not Judas. Not even close. But why not ask for forgiveness? Why not come back to the Father? I mean, Jesus had taught this so many times that God forgives sinners. He taught it. Judas was there. He heard it. Like how the father just had this crazy love for the prodigal son. Why not turn back to the father and ask him forgiveness? Or like the time when Jesus answered Peter's question about how many times to forgive. Seven times? No, 70 times, seven times, right? Peter was like, hey, I, I'm going to double the Jewish standard and add one. That's pretty good. Seven times, Jesus? And Jesus is like, Peter, you ain't even on the same planet as I am. Seven times? How about 70 times? Jesus is throwing out this number. He's just basically saying, this, your forgiveness should be unlimited, like that of my father. And then he goes on to tell this story of how this king forgave his servant who owed him a debt he could not possibly repay. God's forgiveness is so much different than our forgiveness. And here's why. It's hard to forgive as a human. The reason why is because when we forgive, we have to cancel a penalty that someone deserves. If you wrong me, 
I have to say, okay, man, you, I want to pay you back for that. You did this to me? Oh, I want to do this back. So what do I have to do? i got to cancel it. i got to stop that. But divine forgiveness, it always comes after the execution of the penalty. It always comes after the penalty. In Leviticus chapter 4, we are told, make atonement for sin. Make atonement, and then it will be forgiven. In Matthew 26, Jesus said this, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Blood first, then forgiveness. In Hebrews 9, it says, without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So it always comes after the penalty which is awesome. We should rejoice in that fact. All of, the pun- all of the punishment, all of the penalty deserved for all of our sin, for all time, was poured out on Christ. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. Nothing else has to be done. It was poured out. The penalty paid. That's why God can say, I forgive you. The debt has been paid. I forgive you. It was all paid on the cross. Again, godly sorrow should always bring us to the Father. So it's so unexpected that Judas would not have returned to the Father. And the third unexpected thing we find from the life of Judas I think it's even more unexpected than these two previous things that I've shared is that Jesus loved Judas up until the very end on his last day before he would be crucified. Jesus washed Judas's feet. They didn't have nice paved roads like we do. They walked on dirty, crusty roads, and often those roads were littered with dung from all the animals. That's what was on Judas's feet. And Jesus cleaned them, washed them. On his last day, Jesus honored Judas. He gave him the first morsel at the table. It was, it was, it was a thing of honor. It was like it was like another one last, it was like another appeal to Judas. And after he'd been betrayed with a kiss, Jesus called him friend. How do you love someone like that? Someone you know is going to betray you. But not only then, not only on that last day did Jesus love him, but he loved him for three and a half years 
like that, knowing full well he would betray him. Jesus loved him every hour of the day, every day of the week, every week for his life. Jesus went out of his way for the woman at the well. How much more did he go out of his way for Judas? Jesus fed those who followed him because he had compassion. How much more compassion did he have for Judas who was with him day after day? Jesus even taught things that were specifically geared to move the heart of Jesus. Like when he talked about money and he said, you cannot serve both God and money. Either you will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. Wow. How, how, how intentional was that message, especially for Judas, the keeper of the money bag, who used to help himself to it, who was a thief. And over and over and over, and day after day after day, Jesus loved him. He didn't act different. He didn't treat him different. He didn't speak to him differently. He loved him. And as far as we can tell, Judas never reciprocated. Judas never did anything to even motivate Jesus to love him. It was so unexpected. So what can we learn from all of this? What can we learn from these three unexpected things from the life of Judas? Knowing that he rejected Christ, knowing that he's spending an eternity in hell, and knowing that Jesus loved him to the very end. Well, first of all, we can believe in Christ and not reject him. We can believe in Christ. If you've not put your faith in Christ, you can believe in him. You can put your faith in him. You don't have to just be seized with remorse like Judas and feel bad and feel sorry and feel depressed about the wrong things that you have done. But instead, you can turn to a holy God who wants to be your father. You can turn to him and know that he will offer you forgiveness. And you don't have to you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything because the penalty was already paid in full on the cross. Don't reject him. Believe him. Believe in Christ. And number two, don't be surprised that sinners go to hell. Every sinner in the history of the world, will be fully punished, either in Christ on the cross or in the sinner in hell. Every sinner will be fully punished for their sins. There's this crazy phrase that 
it's been out there for a while. You know, it's like, you know, I think it goes something like this. Um, love the sinner, but hate the sin. But here's the thing. God doesn't send sins to hell. He sends sinners to hell. God is holy. He is holy. He cannot and will not coexist with sin. He is the most high God. Psalm 97, 9 says, For you, O Lord, are the most high God. You are exalted far above all gods. It's not that God is far off or away or distant or on the North Pole or someplace crazy like that, but it's rather that in his holiness, he is contrasted with our sinfulness, and the separation between his holiness and our sinfulness is infinite. And so you should not be surprised that God sends sinners to hell. You should see God as holy and set apart. See Jesus as the most high God. Don't just see him as a means to an end like Judas. Exalt him. Lift him up. He is far above all gods, far above your idols. In 1 John it says that when we love the things of the world, that displays our hatred for God. Do not love the things of this world. Love God. Lift him high above all things. And he rejects sin. God is holy. He rejects sin. And this is going to be kind of gross, but, but listen to this. God just he, just, he is repulsed at our sin. In the same way that, that our bodies convulse and reject things when we vomit them out of our bodies, so does God reject our sin. That is not a pleasant thing to think about. Vomiting. In Leviticus 18.25, God warns his children. He said, if you continue in the same sins as your neighbors, the land is going to vomit you out. And Jesus says something very similar in Revelations when he tells the church at Laodicea that because they're lukewarm, not hot, not cold, but lukewarm, what does he say? He says he's going to vomit them, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. God is holy, not just kind of holy, but holy, holy. He rejects evil. It is to him as poison is to our bodies, and he vomits it out. And so you also view your sin as poison. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't try to keep it down. Vomit it out. Get rid of it. Hate it. Loathe. Despise your sin. All sin. Even the, I'm going to talk about this person behind their back, and it's not going to be building them up, but I'm just talking about it because, you know, that's just what we do. God hates that. He hates all sin. He is repulsed by it. And God is light. In 1 John chapter 1, it says this. 
pastor know where 1 John is? Yes, okay. And 1 John, it says this. This is the message we have heard and proclaim that God is light. It's just another description of God's holiness. He is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We're like the pine trees in Colorado. We have fellowship in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So what does this mean? God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So we need to be, we need to be living in the light as well with our sin. Stop keeping our sins hidden like Judas. Man, that guy was good at hiding his sin. Don't be, don't be good like that. Don't be like Judas. Don't hide your sin. Get it out in the open. Let people know. Be like, no thanks. I don't want, it. I don't want the money bag. Somebody else take it. I have this problem with money, and that's a bad idea. And you know your struggles. Bring them into the light. Share them with others so that we can have fellowship. Not in the because here's the thing, we think, oh, like I gotta hide my sin because we're all Christians and we gotta be good and we're supposed to be good. Like, no, that's not supposed to be our fellowship. First John is telling us, no, our fellowship is in the fact that we are fallen and that we need Jesus and we need his help and that we need to confess our sins. So share your sins with others. Don't hide them like Judas. And third, we need to love those who we need to love whoops, those who are rejecting Christ. We need to love them like Jesus. And it's so hard to love people like that. I mean they deny Christ. They live lives of ungodliness. They're hard to be around. They talk about things. And you're just like, oh, I don't want to hear that. And they do things. It's like, I don't want to be near you. Or they stiff arm you. Like the way Jesus did. And sometimes they are, they are our sons and daughters. And they turn from God. They turn their backs on God and they turn to a life of sin. And we find ourselves just, what now? We are so angry with them. Like Judas's parents, it's like we had such high hopes. And now our hopes are dashed to pieces. What do we do? And we want to wring their necks. We want to just show them the truth. We want to tell them, ah, what are you doing? But that is not how Jesus loved Judas. 
man, I want to I love like that. I want to love like the prodigal father. I want to love people so much that when they hit rock bottom, they think, oh, I can go to them because they will love me. And they will love me. Spurgeon says this. He says, we must never stop praying for those in our lives who don't know Christ until they cease to breathe. And he says this, he says, because no case, none, no case is hopeless while Jesus lives. And in Psalm 130, verse 7, it says this, it says, with the Lord, with him is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. That's what God has to offer. Steadfast love. He's not emotionally all over the place like we so often tend to be. His love is laser focused and purposeful and specific and steadfast. He loves and with him is plentiful redemption. Redemption enough to save so many of us in this room, right? So is it not also plentiful enough to save those in our lives who have rejected Christ? Oh, absolutely. It is so plentiful, so plentiful. So those three things, man, those three things are so unexpected. How did Judas reject Christ? How did he not ask for forgiveness? And how did Jesus love Judas up until the very end? Man, those things are so unexpected, but we can learn from them. We can learn from them. We can believe in Christ. We can... Let me look here. Losing my thoughts. We can reject our sin, bring it into the light, and we can love those who reject Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love that we so do not deserve. God, may we just leave our thoughts and our minds there on the cross.